Would you pray with me once more as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you already for the way that you've ministered my heart this morning, through worship, through communion, through just the time gathering together with your body. Uh, Lord, may you continue to minister now. Uh, May you speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, we declare that you are good. Your purposes are good. Your ways are good. We have come this morning to be in the presence of our good Father. So, Lord, would you just speak to us this morning? Would you transform us for our own good to be more like you this morning? And, Father, as always, may I decrease and you increase. Be glorified, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our walk through the book of Mark. uh, And we are um, working through the last half of Mark chapter 5 this morning. Uh, and so let me, we're going to start by just reading this passage, and then we'll go through and break it down. I had a, um, a really good conversation with someone this week, just about last week's message, and they had some questions, and it was a really good uh, conversation. And one of the things that came out of it was uh, just being able to share with them one of the things that I'm hoping to do as we work through the book of Mark, in, in case this hasn't been clear yet, is I want to teach us to learn to put ourselves into the story. I think one of the reasons why God reveals himself through the stories of Scripture instead of just dense theological texts is because he wants us to be able to imagine what would it have been like to be there? What if Jesus was saying that to me? What if Jesus had done that in my presence, in my village, to my friend? How would I have responded? What would that have looked like? What what would that have spurred on in me? And so as we read through this, we're then going to go through and break it down because I want to just be as practical as possible and try to to not only challenge but teach us how do we put ourselves into the story? How do we allow God to use the imaginations that he's given us to to allow the the words on a page to come to life that God, I think, can, can minister to us in ways that maybe some of us haven't experienced yet? So let me read through the passage. And then we'll come back and kind of break it down a little bit. So starting uh, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him uh, while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus fell at his feet and kept begging him, my little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. A woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard that Jesus came, or excuse me, having heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his robe. For she said, if I can just touch his robes, I will be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was cured of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my robes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you. How can you say who touched me? So he was looking around to see who had done this. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came with fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? 
But when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child's not dead, but asleep. They started laughing at him and he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those that were with him, and he entered the place where the child was. He took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. So this is a, a story many of us have heard before. But I want to just kind of slow it down a little bit and just walk through it. What would it have been like to be there, to be witnessing all of this? So it starts with, with Jairus, the local synagogue leader. He heard that Jesus was in town again. Because listen, this has been a crazy couple days for Jesus. If you remember back to Mark chapter 4 and earlier in 5, Jesus has crossed over the Sea of Galilee from this place where he was now. And he got to uh, the place where there was a, a demon-oppressed man wailing loudly in the mountains. You remember last week's story that we read through? Cutting himself, and the people were all afraid of this man. Jesus cast the demons out of this man. And the people of the town are so uh, covered in fear that they come and they say, you can't stay here, you need to leave. And so Jesus and his boys immediately get back in the boat and head back across the Sea of Galilee, where they had just come from, and they end up here on the shores again. And Jairus, something has changed in the last couple days since Jesus left and came back. His daughter is now, as he would say, at death's doorstep. And so when he hears that Jesus has come back, there's probably some surprise already. He just left. But Jairus beats the crowd sprints to where Jesus is, and it says, falls at his feet, begging him, come, please, touch my daughter so that she may be well and that she may live. And, and, and so Jesus agrees, of course, and as they start moving off towards Jairus' house, and with this large crowd gathering them, there's another woman who heard that Jesus was back in town and came running a woman who had been suffering bleeding for 12 years. I have never in my life wanted to be a woman. And certain reasons more than others. One of which is what you ladies suffer a week out of every month, three months out of every year. I don't think anyone goes, man, that's got to be cool. I can't imagine having suffered that for 12 years constantly. Not only did she have this suffering, but she had spent so much going to the doctors and trying to seek healing. She was completely broke and now actually worse off. Her situation didn't even stay the same. It was getting worse. And she hears that Jesus is in town. And so she comes running to get to the feet of Jesus. She comes running, and she receives her miracle, reaches out, touches his cloak, and it says that instantly she knew that the flow of blood had ceased and that she was healed. 
just from touching his robe, or, or some translations say touching the hem of his garment. Power goes out from Jesus. This woman receives a miracle and is healed. And remember, there's this massive crowd pressing in against Jesus, and he has the audacity to stop and say, whoa, 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 who touched me? Something happened. Who touched me? And even his disciples, kind of like a little flabbergasted, they say, what, are you kidding me right now? With this crowd pressing in, you're going to ask who touched you? Are you kidding me? But this woman knows what has happened. And when Jesus turns and says, who touched me? She comes forward and she falls at his feet with fear and trembling. Remember last week we talked about this, the fear of the Lord, when we experience the presence and the power of the Lord. This woman falls at his feet, consumed by the fear of the Lord. It says, with fear and trembling, she told him the whole truth. I, it was me. I, I came and I, and I touched your robe. And, and it's hard for us sometimes because we go, why would you? You'd think she'd come dancing and go, it was me. Look at what happened, everybody. But she is terrified. And she comes and falls at his feet. And you, it's almost apologetically tells him the whole truth. I, I know you're a busy man. You were on your way. Like, but I, I just had to. And when I touched your robe, I was healed. Almost, and I'm sorry. I, I know that I'm not worth taking up your time. I know that you were on your way somewhere. And I, oh, man. Like, but she comes and she falls at his feet. And Jesus' response to her is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. And he's having this beautiful moment with this woman for all the crowd to see. But let's not forget, there's a man named Jairus whose daughter is at death's doorstep. And you can kind of put yourself in Jairus' feet and going, uh, Rabbi, I was first. Um, kind of, we're on the clock here. This has been going on for 12 years. She can probably wait 12 more hours. We got to move. My daughter's life is at stake, and you can almost sense the impatience in Jairus. And actually, as this is happening, Jairus gets bad news. Jairus gets the worst news. People from Jairus' house come to him, and they say, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's gone. And Jesus, with compassion, he overhears this, and he comes to Jairus, and he says, don't believe that. Don't be afraid. Only believe. B believe what? Jairus had said that if you can just come and touch her, she will be well, and she will live. Jesus is going, don't give in to fear. Just believe that. And so Jairus goes with Jesus and takes probably what is the longest walk home he's ever taken. They told me she's dead. He's telling me, just believe. I did just see him work a miracle without even meaning to. There, there, and you can kind of sense this, this tension of, of hope and dread as he walks home. And as they get close to the house, you can start to hear the mourners weeping and wailing loudly, confirming Jairus' worst fear. She's gone. But Jesus is there. And Jesus has said, don't worry about that. Just believe. 
And so Jesus takes his, his three with him, Peter, James, and John, and he says, let's go in. We got work to do. And as they walk in, Jesus says, no, 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 guys, there's no need for the commotion. She's just asleep. We don't need all the weeping and the wailing. She's going to be okay. And the morning turns to mocking. They actually begin to laugh at Jesus. Who does this guy think he is? And Jesus has them all put out of the house. There's no need for you here. Get out. And so the only people left in the house are the little girl, Jairus, his wife, Jesus, and the three. And it says that they go into where the girl is. Jesus takes her by the hand and says, get up, little girl. Talitha kum, get up, rise. And we see that to Jairus' astonishment, his daughter wakes up. It says immediately she got up and began to walk around. And Jesus actually says, give her something to eat. This was a way of proving this isn't some trick of the eye. This isn't some like spirit that has now come up and is fooling all of us. She is flesh and blood. She is alive and well, and she is hungry. And by this little girl eating some food, it actually would have been proof that she was alive. We see Jesus do the same thing when he comes back from the grave, when he's resurrected, and he meets with his disciples, and he says, look, what proof do you guys need? Touch me. This is real flesh. I'm not just some spirit back from the grave. You can put your hands in my wounds. And in fact, he says, you know what? Give me some of that fish. And he eats in their presence. And it's when he eats that they are astonished. This is real. He really came back from the dead. And Jairus and his wife would have had the same experience. Not only watching their daughter get up and walk around, but then begin to eat food, which was proof She is alive and she is well. But then Jesus says one of those hard to understand things at the end. He raises this girl from the dead. He restores her to her parents. And then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. Keep this a secret. This is one of those things as you read through the Gospels that is hard to really piece together. There's times when Jesus says, go shout it from the rooftops. And there's other times when he says, make sure no one knows about this. And it's hard. You go, man, if I was trying to usher in a kingdom, if I was running for the position of king of the kingdom, the first thing you do is take every good work you've ever done and you publicize it. You let everybody know about everything good you've ever done. Yet Jesus, especially in Mark's account, the majority of the the miracles and these kingdom works that he does, he tells people, keep a secret. In the story right before this, the first half of Mark chapter 5, we see Jesus going over to the other side, and there's this demon-oppressed man, and Jesus sets this man free. And then he tells them this, as they're getting ready to leave, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him, but he would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they were all amazed. So Jesus tells that man, go make a big deal. The Decapolis, actually what that means is to the 10 cities. There was these 10 cities that were, it was almost like a state 
in that time. They kind of identified together, but it was 10 distinct cities. And he he tells the man, go, make sure everyone in the area knows what God has done for you. And yet we find the very next interaction with Jairus, keep this one a secret. I wonder, this, this is me wondering, the scripture never tells us exactly why some are secret and some are not, but this is my wondering. When it comes to what the scripture calls the demoniac, uh, the man with demon oppression, the power of the enemy was very public in his life. Everybody knew about this man. He had, he had overcome everyone that had tried to oppress him. He was in the mountainsides right outside the town, cutting himself and wailing and screaming loudly. The power of the enemy was incredibly public in his life. And we find Jesus saying, go make sure the kingdom works are even more public. The the enemy had been moving in very public ways, and Jesus says, now go make sure they see the kingdom move in public ways. And then you have the story of Jairus and his daughter. It's not well known. That word has not spread that his daughter is dead. He, in fact, just received word. And so you see Jesus coming in, and he works this even greater miracle, restoring this little girl from the dead. And he says, keep it a secret. And I wonder... If it's not in a way of going, Jairus, this this one's intimate. This one's just for you. This is not a power move where I'm trying to make my name known and I'm going to use your daughter to do it. This is Jesus having compassion for a father and working a miracle in his daughter's life. Don't don't go tell people. Almost don't cheapen this. This one was for you. This was between me and you. And we see that obviously word got out because here we are talking about it 2,000 years later. But I wonder if that wasn't what was going on in the spirit of Jesus. This is not about publicity, Jairus. This is about like, I heard your brokenness. I saw your desperation. And I wanted to meet your need. No one else needs to know about this. I wonder. So we have in this story, in in Mark 5, 21 to 43, what is theologically called a Markian sandwich. Sounds delicious, right? A Markian sandwich, uh, what this refers to is a way that Mark would often tell stories. And the way that he would do it, Chris, go ahead and put the next piece up there, is he would tell part of story A, A1, and then he would move over and tell story B, and then he would come back and finish story A, A2. Does that make sense? So you see the sandwich. Mark, he would tie two stories together that seemed like they were completely separate events, but he would tie them together using certain words, certain commonalities. Sometimes it was phrases. Sometimes it was something to do with the setting. But he would weave the stories together because he wanted you to connect the two of them. The reason he didn't just tell Jairus' story and then just tell the woman who was suffering from bleeding story, he wanted us to connect them, so he wove them together. What are some of the the points of the story that help connect the two? What are some, maybe it's words, maybe it's some of the situation that connect the two stories that we just walked through? This is where you share. Okay, 
Mark makes it very clear that both of them were seeking the touch of Jesus. The woman said, if I can just touch his clothes. Jairus said, if you can just touch my daughter. There was something about just, just at the touch, something would happen. What else? Yeah, yeah. They both had this incredible faith that was driving them. And we're going to talk about that more here in a minute. Absolute desperation. You can hear it in their stories. And when it kind of gives what they were thinking would happen, both of them absolutely desperate. What else? Yeah, both of them were at the end of themselves. There was nothing more they could do. There was no one else they could hire or a specialist they could bring in. It was Jesus or nothing at that point. Okay, both females were considered unclean. We're going to talk about this one here in a minute as well. It's really important. What else? There's a, there's a time that's mentioned for both of them. Anyone? 12 years. In both of their stories, 12 years is mentioned. The woman has been bleeding for 12 years. And Mark makes a point to say, after the, the little girl is healed, he goes, and she was 12 years old. He's trying to tie the two together. Anything else? There's something that both of them are referred to as in this story. One by Jesus and one by her father. What was it? Daughter. Both of them were referred to as daughter, and it was really meaningful in both of the stories. As I was researching for this uh, this week, I found there was a, a professor at Biola University um, who put this in a way that I hadn't thought of before, and I, I want to share with you guys, and she had framed it in, this story is a tale of two daughters. Two very different 12-year paths to get to Jesus. Both of them, their path to Jesus started 12 years ago. The woman, because of her affliction, and the little girl at birth, whether they knew it or not, both of them were on collision course with Jesus that would happen in 12 years. And they are both daughters. They're both referred to by, by name as daughters in this story. And I think that Mark was trying to, to tie these two together to teach us something. So let's take a look first at Jairus and his daughter at their 12-year path to Jesus. So Jairus was a synagogue leader. Okay, In, in those days, it was like a megachurch pastor in the area. To be a synagogue leader was to be respected and revered in the community. Think of a, a well-known, respected pastor like back in the 1950s, when like people kind of made way for a pastor. When Whether you were part of the church or not, you, that's where you went if you needed help, if you needed someone to talk with, uh, someone to help you process. That's where you went. They were respected and revered. And that was these synagogue leaders. Everyone in the community would have known who Jairus was. Because to be Jewish was in some way, shape, or form to be affiliated with the synagogue. And Jairus, as the leader, would have been really well-known and respected. Jairus' daughter would have enjoyed a measure of luxury and respect herself. 
Jairus would have been probably not overly rich, but well taken care of in that time. And his daughter would have grown up probably without knowing a whole lot of need. And everyone would have known that's Jairus' daughter. And they probably would have said hi to her in the streets. And they would have treated her with a level of respect because of who her father was. Fast forward 12 years. And we see as this girl lay at death's doorstep, a couple of you had brought this up. We see absolute desperation in the life of her father. Her father has come, like you said, to the end of himself. If Jesus doesn't come with me and touch my daughter, she's gone. And so we see this man, well-respected in the community, revered. People would have kind of put him on a pedestal. And we see him coming in front of a crowd. How does he approach Jesus? How does it describe him approaching Jesus? He fell at his feet. Verse 22 and 23, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and listen to this, and he kept begging him. My little daughter is at death's door. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. This is not like a respectable way. Jesus, if you get around, I know that you are a great healer. Uh, would you please come and work your majesty? This is a father in desperation, doesn't care who's watching, falls at the feet of Jesus because you're the only one. If you don't come and touch my daughter, she will die. And so we see him begging, publicly pleading Jesus to come. Something that we can miss, this would have been actually a really risky situation for Jairus to put himself in, to come and publicly beg Jesus to do a kingdom work on his behalf. Why would this have been risky for Jairus, the leader of the local synagogue? Jesus, was, Jesus and his whole kingdom message, we talked about this a few weeks ago, was a threat to the established religion. Like a massive threat to the established religion. So why would this have been risky for Jairus? Yeah. There could, there could have been many that gone, what a hypocrite. You, you can't say that it's about like the law and all of this stuff. And then go ask for this Jesus who's saying, no, there's a, there's a new kingdom in a new way. He would have lost a lot of status by doing this. Who have we already seen coming against Jesus in this same area last time that he was there? It's the normal bad guys. You don't have to go looking too hard. The scribes and the Pharisees. If you remember, in chapter 4, in this same area, they came and in front of everyone said, Jesus is doing all of this by the power of Satan. And Jesus had very publicly made them look stupid. There had been barbs and jabs back and forth, and they were all incredibly public. And guess who Jairus' bosses were? The scribes and the Pharisees. There was already a cabal created. We got to take this guy down. They were already starting to plot Jesus' death. And it wasn't a secret that they were at odds with each other. And Jairus had a choice to make. If I go do this, there's a chance I lose my job. 
There's a chance I lose the respect of my community. There's a chance that they start attacking me just like they're attacking him. They're going to make an example out of me. But again, we see the desperate faith of Jairus. I don't care what it costs me. I have to get to the feet of Jesus because he can make things different. I will risk everything because only Jesus can make a difference. So let's go to the other daughter. This woman who had been suffering this bleeding disease for 12 years. It doesn't give us specifics of what it is, but you can tell that she has been in pain for 12 years. Again, spent everything she had and things are only getting worse. This woman is in a desperate state. Not only the pain and discomfort, the loss of money and and probably even humiliation that she's had, As Heidi had shared, she was also considered for 12 years unclean, constantly, ceremonially unclean. Now, what it meant to be unclean, because in the Mosaic Law, it said that if anyone is bleeding, be that from a wound, from what happens with women, whatever it may be, while they're bleeding, they're ceremonially unclean. They can't take part in feasts and worship. No one can touch them. No one can sit in the chair that they've sat in. No one can eat the food that they have prepared. If this woman had a family, her husband would not have been able to touch her without becoming unclean himself. Her her children would not have been able to hug their mother without being ceremonially unclean. There's a decent chance, we don't know, that she did not have a family. Because who would want to marry someone that you can't touch? Who would want to marry someone that the law says you have to keep at arm's length? When she walked through the towns and streets, she would have been given a wide berth because what if she accidentally bumped into you? You're now unclean. The way that this whole thing works is when someone who was unclean touched someone or something, that someone or something became unclean. This woman had been carrying this for 12 years. This was more than just physical pain and discomfort. Unable to touch another person for 12 years. Truly, and this is not a stretch, being treated as a leper. She would have been treated exactly as a leper for 12 years. Now think about this. The audacity of touching Jesus. This woman had, it had been very clear, you can't touch anyone or anything. It becomes unclean. And for her to see the rabbi is in town. And what's her thought? I have to go touch him. I won't touch him a lot. I'll just touch him a little bit. If I can just touch the hem of his robes, maybe he can just take it off real quick. And that way he's not unclean. But there's this desperation. This is not only frowned upon, Honestly, it's against the Mosaic law. But I am so desperate. If Jesus, if I can just get to him, he makes everything different. Verse 28, if I can just touch his robes, I'll be made well. You hear the desperation that's in it. And now her response of trembling and fear makes more sense. Jesus should have been furious. If he knew who it was that touched him 
And I'm sure many of the crowd stepped back and went, oh, here we go. Like, she just broke so many laws. This was not a social faux pas. Like, what she just did was wrong. She touched the purest person they knew of, the one who was going around selflessly healing all of these other people, and by her touching him, he should have been made unclean. The purity and power of Jesus makes even clearer to this woman her own impurity and unworthiness. So she falls at his feet with fear and trembling. And when it says that she tells him the whole truth, it's like a confession. Here's what I did. I know that it was wrong. I just, I had to do something. I knew that you could make a difference. But what we actually see in the story is the most beautiful thing. It's the Mosaic law reversed. It should have been what's unclean. When, when someone who's unclean touches something, it becomes unclean. Uh, Heidi had also mentioned the, that Jairus' daughter was unclean in the time because she was a dead body. Dead bodies were unclean. And to touch a dead body meant that you were now, by extension, unclean. To touch something unclean made you unclean. But what we see here is the exact opposite. Jesus' power and purity is such that when he touches unclean things, they're made pure. Jesus at no point in time was going, now I'm ceremonially unclean, now I gotta... He said, no, 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 even better. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your affliction. You are now pure. You are now clean because you touched me. And everyone would have known what this meant and been astounded by it. He should be unclean now, yet he declares that her affliction is gone, she is set free, and she can go in peace. And he uses this title for her, daughter. Your faith has made you well. What would have been the significance for this woman to hear daughter from him? This, again, is where you talk. What would have been the significance of that word, daughter, to her? Put yourself in her shoes. What's that? Yeah. How close do you think her own father has gotten to her in the last 12 years? Probably not very. If he didn't disown her completely, they may have yelled across the yard at the closest but now she has Jesus, who should be furious with her, and she's fear and trembling. And he says, daughter. What else? What's significant about this daughter? That was an yeah. 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 Talk about feeling forgotten. <laughs> This woman for 12 years, like I said, she couldn't take part in worship and festivals and, and all of the things that made Judaism what it was. God certainly has forgotten about me. But now to hear such an intimate term, daughter. How socially acceptable do you think it was for a man to talk to a woman back then, let alone an unclean woman, a woman that was not his wife? This was completely unacceptable and yet we find Jesus breaking through barriers. This woman who has been devalued for the last 12 years. And Jesus speaks the most intimate word he can to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
both daughters had access to Jesus through faith. The woman who had been bleeding, it was her desperate faith that drove her to Jesus, and Jesus rewarded her boldness with not only a healing miracle, but then speaking the most intimate words to her. And we see Jesus with Jairus. It's through Jairus' faith that his daughter is healed. And we see again this intimacy where Jesus goes, no, 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 don't tell anyone. This is between us. My heart broke for you as a father, and I want to restore your daughter to you. It is because of their desperate faith that they are driven to Jesus and they see kingdom works take place. As I even say that, I am convicted in my own heart, where is my desperate faith? I have a kind of calm, cool, collected faith. Yeah, God can do that if he wants. But where in my life am I desperate for him? Jesus, if you don't show up, we're done for. We're toast. You are the only way forward. See, what I've done is I've insulated myself with safety and comfort so that there's always something else to try. I'm terrified to go out on that limb where it's Jesus or nothing. If he doesn't catch me, I'm falling. These people were forced into those situations and they saw the power of God on display. I wonder if one of the reasons we don't see God's power moving, certainly as often, is because we refuse to allow ourselves to be in a place of desperation. I'll always find a shortcut. I'll always find a way out. I'll always find something else that I can blame or something else that can help. I'm terrified to allow myself to be in a place where, Jesus, it's you or nothing. Because it seems unwise. Because I've, I've got all of these logical things. But what I see is their desperation drove them to Jesus, and they saw the power of God at work in their lives. Faith is the great equalizer for these ones. I think one of the reasons that Mark tied these stories together is he's trying to say, look, no matter where you come from, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what yesterday looked like, by faith we have access to Jesus, and Jesus makes things different. Whether you come from a well-respected home and you've grown up in church your whole life, and what, you've come from the darkest places. Faith is the great equalizer. By faith, we have access to Jesus. By faith, this woman was healed. By faith, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. Faith is the great equalizer. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter even your current situation. By faith, we have access to Jesus, and Jesus makes everything different. And I want to say this. I was uh, hesitant to preach on this story because I know that there are those in our body who have prayed this exact prayer and who have come with desperation and they didn't see the same miracle. We have people in our body who have lost their children, who have lost their parents, who have lost loved ones, and they prayed desperately, and they didn't see their miracle. They saw sorrow and loss. 
And I was hesitant because I don't want to try to make a case for if you'll just be desperate enough or if you just muster up enough faith, then Jesus has to do what you told him to do. That's not the story here. We see how these people gained access, but there's not that guarantee. But here is the guarantee. Here is the hope that we have in Jesus If you are a follower of Christ, if your loved one is a follower of Christ, they will hear, get up and eat, whether in this life or the next. The hope that we have is that even if our miracle doesn't come in this life, we have a hope that outlasts this life. If Jairus' daughter would not have woke up then, then her eyes would have opened in heaven and she would have heard, get up, little girl, and eat. It's the feast of the Lamb. Come enjoy life eternal. That is the hope that we have. And because of, we we hate loss. We don't know how to mourn. There's so many things that go into it. It almost seems like, yeah, that's okay, but it's not as good as if we would have seen life right now. We have to understand it's even better (laughs) to never know pain again, to never know loss again to just know intimacy with the Father for the rest of eternity is a blessing that most of us can only hope for. But it hurts when we don't see the miracle. It hurts when we have to suffer loss. But we have to understand, whether for ourselves or for those loved ones, if we are in Christ, we will see healing. We will see wholeness. We will see a miracle in this life or in the next, and that should bring peace. We will still mourn when loved ones go. But the reason that we're told not to mourn as the world mourns, but to mourn with hope is because we know the truth of Scripture, that when someone passes from this life to the next, when they have been following Jesus, they will hear, get up and eat. It's time to celebrate. And that should bring us hope in the midst of our mourning. So I'm always torn with this story because we don't really have the stories where somebody asked for a healing and didn't get it. You see some of that later in some of Paul's writings and that. But when Jesus was here on earth, the stories we have are they asked and they got it. But we know that that's not our reality now all the time. But here's the truth. I believe that God desires for us to see more healings and more miracles than we currently do. If we will allow ourselves to be desperate if we will allow ourselves to be in that same place that says, if I can just touch his robes, if he can just come and touch my daughter, I believe we will see more miracles than we do. That doesn't mean yes every time, but in those times, then we take solace in the fact that truly that person is better off now than they would have been here. And that gives us peace and hope in the midst of our mourning. The question for us is what are those things that we've safeguarded ourselves, those things truly that keep us from desperation, those things that keep us from that kind of faith that says, I have to, there is no plan B. What are the things that I'm relying on that are truly keeping me from Jesus? Those things that are probably masquerading as blessings, that actually what they're doing is they're keeping me securely angered into this world and how it says to live. And until I let go of them, I will never turn and run desperately to the feet of Jesus. 
He is our living hope. Nothing in this world, nothing in this world can ever match up. Will we allow ourselves to be in the place of Jairus and this woman? I will do anything to get to your feet because you are the only thing that can make a difference. Let me pray, and then we'll close in a song. Lord Jesus, I love this story. I really do. God, I love that you've turned everything that they knew on its head, that your purity overcomes any of our own impurity, any of our own unworthiness. You reach down and you call us daughter. You call us son. You give us access to you through our faith. Whether we see a miracle now or not, we experience the peace of your presence. We experience that everything is different because Jesus is in the room. Lord, may we not only live out this kind of hope and faith, but may we offer it to others. God, may we live the kind of lives that others see what we have and they demand an explanation. May we allow ourselves to be desperate in our faith. That faith that forces us to boldly enter into the throne of grace and ask of the king that which we're not worthy of, but he offers us anyway. Would you do this work in our hearts, God, if there are things that are that are insulating us, that are keeping us safe, that are keeping us from desperation, God, would you gently, patiently walk with us? Show us those things. And God, I pray even begin to remove them from our life. May our hope be in nothing other than the person of Jesus Christ, I pray. In your name and to your glory. Amen. Would you guys stand as we sing?